Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This is the third message in our fall sermon series, The Politics of Jesus, Following Christ in the American Empire. In this series, we want to give serious thought to what it looks like to embrace the agenda of Jesus and embody his radical way of love as we seek to navigate this election season by letting the Messiah from Nazareth lead us and show us what it means to be faithful to God in these tumultuous times. We began this series two weeks ago by reflecting on how Jesus said that his disciples are to be known by their love. I said that judging by the church's reputation in America and the behavior that we're observing among many Christians in this country, both from conservatives and progressives, Something is definitely amiss with the church's witness today. And so I called us to remember who we are, and I invited us to return to the way of Jesus, the way of love, and not of trusting in political power and winning with the weapons of this world. And then last week we saw how Jesus resisted the temptation to use worldly kingdom power to advance his kingdom on the earth. Jesus showed us that the kingdom of God is about power under not power over. And he called his disciples with divergent political views to set aside their opinions in order to follow him and discover a third way to live within the empire. As followers of Christ living in a polarized nation today, we so desperately need to embrace what Jesus has taught and modeled us. Like I said, if we don't do it, no one else will. Which brings us to today's message, which I've entitled the inaugural address of Jesus. And what we're going to see today may very well be something you've never noticed before. You see, like an incoming president reveals the things they intend to do when they come into power on Inauguration Day, Jesus does the same when he makes his royal announcement in Nazareth. But unfortunately, as we'll see in this message, not everyone desires his kingdom. Some people like things the way that they are. So whether you're watching at home or you're listening to our podcast, I want to invite you to open up your heart and your mind to the things of the Spirit, to the voice of Jesus. And let's ask God to help us to do whatever is necessary to follow Christ in a world of competing idols and allegiances. So if you would, please join me in a quick prayer of submission to God and His will for our lives. Father, as always, we want to hear from you. We want to hear the words of life, words that change us. Open up our hearts and our minds. Lord, make them fertile ground for the seeds of the kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Have you heard those words before? Who said that? And when and where were these words spoken? Some of you know this. 
Those famous words were spoken by John F. Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, on January 20th, 1961, in his inaugural address. As you know, every four years we have a national election, and on Inauguration Day, the president, uh, in JFK's case, a newly elected president, delivers a speech that informs the nation of their intentions as a leader, what their administration will seek to accomplish during their term, and sometimes what they intend to do in the first 100 days of being in office. Now, in the U.S., the inaugural addresses are often used to unite the country and share a hopeful vision for the future. Incoming presidents, they usually, you know, will seek to inspire the nation, garner support for their agenda, even attempt to win over those who aren't sure of their abilities or those who just flat out disagree with them, and then assure the country and the world why they'll be better off with them in power. And you might not know this, but Jesus did something similar in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Following his temptations in the Judean wilderness, we see this episode of Jesus' inaugural address. And we need to seriously consider the politically subversive nature of what's happening in the Gospels, because we often miss this as American Christians. As I said before, if we will see the baptism of Jesus as his public anointing as the Messiah, that is God's promised king coming to power, and then his temptations, uh, seeing that as the way Jesus decided what kind of Messiah and king he would be, then we can certainly see how in the very next episode in Luke's gospel, Jesus gives us insights into his own self-understanding, what his intentions are as God's appointed leader, and what his kingdom will look like. So let's look at that together. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Now think about this. The Spirit came on Jesus at his baptism, represented by a dove, and now after having resisted the devil, deciding what kind of Messiah he is going to be, and having already begun his teaching and healing ministry, Jesus returns full of the Spirit to where he grew up. The word was out, and people were loving his campaign, you could say. Uh, he wasn't just kissing babies, he was healing them, if you know what I mean. And then verse 15 says, he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. Check this out. Jesus was growing in popularity. The folks weren't even entirely sure who he was and where he stood on the hot-button issues of his day, but it was exciting to be sure. Verse 16 says, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Now, let me give you some background information here. So the, the Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday, and notice that Jesus religiously attended the local synagogue. Jesus was a religious Jew. It's helpful to know that synagogues first began during the Babylonian exile as a way of continuing devotion and worship of Yahweh when they didn't have the temple and were far removed from Jerusalem. As a result of their captivity, synagogues would become the center of religious and civic life for Jewish communities post-exile. They not only served as a place of worship, they were also a school, a community center, and a place for administering justice. And unlike the temple, 
synagogues are not led by priests. Instead, the synagogue was led by Jewish laymen. It actually took 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. And since the Torah was a central focus of their worship, Pharisees often provided oversight of the synagogue. So Jesus goes to the synagogue in Nazareth where he would have grown up in worship and likely because of his growing reputation and because he was a local boy back in town, Jesus is invited as a distinguished visitor to read scripture and share a brief homily and interpretation of the scripture. It's very likely that the text would have been chosen for him in advance according to synagogue practice, which means that there are two readings in worship that day. First is a reading from the law, and then a reading from the prophets. Jesus is given, of course, the second reading in Isaiah. So the first reading had already taken place. What was the first reading? Well, some scholars believe that the text associated with what Jesus is going to read from the prophets is from Deuteronomy 30. Here's what two familiar verses in that chapter say. This is verse 19 and 20. Deuteronomy 30, it says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. Now assuming that that's what Jesus read, Luke says in verse 17 that the synagogue leader or attendant then hands Jesus the scroll of Isaiah. This would have been a really long scroll without chapters or verses. And Luke says, unrolling it, Jesus found the place where it is written. That that place in our Bible is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And here's what Jesus read. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'd like us to give some attention here to each line that Jesus quotes. But first, we need to notice that this passage from Isaiah is located within the literary unit of Isaiah 60 through 63. And in those chapters, Isaiah is describing Yahweh's salvation and deliverance, that God will bring all nations unto himself, and that a specific person will announce the good news of God's kingdom coming, eventually leading to Yahweh overcoming Israel's enemies. So, for some time, this passage in Isaiah was thought to be messianic and pointing to God's good future for Israel. Now, as I said, look at each line. Jesus says that he has come to proclaim the good news to the poor. The poor here refers to those living in poverty, But it also included those of lower social status, outsiders, the marginalized, the voiceless, and people living on the fringes. So this is what they would have thought about. While it can include the poor in spirit, as Matthew translates that beatitude in his gospel, it most definitely refers to those who are physically poor. And we will see Jesus, you know, proclaiming good news to the poor and lifting them up from their plight all throughout the gospels. And then he says, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. The New Revised Standard Version says, release to the captives. Now, obviously, the literal sense here is getting people out of jail, which is a good thing, uh, particularly for the wrongly accused or, or those who have been unfairly sentenced. Although we don't see Jesus actually doing that in his ministry, it does happen later. You can see people being freed from prison in the book of Acts. 
Uh, it will also become the basis for abolition movements and prison reform throughout history. And praise God for that. But we should also notice that in Luke, the freedom for the prisoners looks like setting people free from the bondage to spiritual evil through exorcisms and healings. After all, you can set people free from a jail cell, but they can still live in their own private hell as a free person. And Jesus is concerned about that too. And then Jesus says he's come to give recovery of sight for the blind. And as you recall, Jesus literally opened the eyes of blind people in the Gospels. But we can also see how Jesus opens eyes in a spiritual sense for people to see the truth and come into his kingdom. And for people like Nicodemus to be born again. We see that in John chapter 3. So we shouldn't make the mistake here as often post-enlightenment Westerners do of wanting to choose either a little literal interpretation or a spiritual one. Instead, we need to uh, hold them together because Jesus and his Jewish audience, they would, they would have done this. They both reflect the reality of God's creation. We live in a physical, material world that is mysteriously connected to the spiritual realms and spiritual matters. And then Jesus says to set the oppressed free. Now that can apply to so many people in situations today, which we should do. But in the context, they specifically would have thought of how the empire was oppressing and subjugating them, making them exiles and prisoners in their own land. And then in verse 19, which would have been Isaiah 61 verse, uh, verse uh, 2, Jesus reads the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what's that about? Well, this refers to the Jewish concept of the Jubilee year in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 8 through 10. And I, and I say concept purposely because there isn't any historical evidence that Israel ever practiced Jubilee. That's because Jubilee required that every 50 years debts be forgiven, slaves go free, that people stop charging interest on loans, that you treat each other with fairness, and you make it possible that everyone receives what they need to live and be an equal contributing member of society. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann said that the Jubilee is about the rehabilitation of life out of impoverishment, powerlessness, and despair. You see, the idea behind Jubilee is that it's the way a community in trouble can resolve and restore what is broken and what is run amok. And this vision of Jubilee, which offers profound hope for those disadvantaged and downtrodden, is understandably devastating to those who benefit from maintaining the status quo and keeping things the way that they are, a system that has given them power and privilege over others. So you can see why there isn't any evidence that this was ever actually practiced. I mean, how many folks are going to be excited about this idea today, especially people in power and with privilege. Yet it reflects where God wants to take the world. As one commentator writes, when understood literally, the passage says that Christ is God's servant who will bring to reality the longing and hope of the poor, the oppressed, and the imprisoned. That Christ will usher in the amnesty, the liberation, and the restoration associated with the proclamation of the year of Jubilee. Sounds exciting, right? Well, not everyone likes the idea and how it applies, as we'll see uh, in this passage. Now, I should also point out something I believe is critical to Jesus' own self-understanding, how he views God the Father and how he views his mission. And we can see here what Jesus read from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. But pay careful attention 
to what he didn't read. Because Jesus stops reading in the middle of verse 2, and here's what would have come next. Isaiah 61 verse 2 said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus not finish reading the verse that speaks of God's vengeance on his enemies? Now, some will immediately say, well, it's because Jesus came first to show us love and to die for our sins. After all, in John 3, 17, Jesus said that God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. And while I agree that Jesus came to show us love, to die for our sins, to save, not to condemn, I want to submit to you that this is what God is actually like what he has always been like and will always be like, what Jesus shows us here. Which means that we are the ones who have misunderstood how his wrath and his vengeance works. We are the ones who have projected our own sinfulness and ideas of justice onto God, wanting him to operate more like sinful humanity. And so we, like, say, James and John, the sons of thunder, want to call uh, fire down from heaven and have God destroy our enemies. But for Jesus, he isn't going to be that kind of Messiah because the Father isn't that kind of God. And this isn't going to sit well with the folks in Nazareth. They see what Jesus is doing. Look what happens next in verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now notice, Jesus sat down to teach, which was customary in Judaism. Uh, you would stand up to read, you'd sit down to teach, and, and he would have sat in what they called the seat of Moses, symbolizing the authority of the speaker. And you can imagine, just imagine the suspense here. I mean, you likely could have heard a pin drop. What's Jesus going to say? And then he speaks, and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. <gasps> what? Oh no, he didn't. <laughs> but yes, he did. You see, in Luke's gospel, apart from his reading of scripture, today, the word today is the first word Jesus utters in his public ministry, emphasizing the already nature of the kingdom age. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah and the kingdom which I embody is coming now through me. I'm about to do all of these things which you have read about for centuries and that you have been anticipating and longing for your whole lives. And look what happens next in verse 22. Luke says, at first all spoke well of him, literally means they bore witness to him, that is their initial impression was favorable and they can't believe this is the same Jesus who grew up in their village. But look, their response, isn't this Joseph's son, makes us think of the saying, Familiarity breeds contempt because you see their proximity to Jesus and their feelings of privilege, being the villagers who watched Jesus grow up, are going to make it impossible for them to hear his words and embrace his mission. They want Jesus to do the miraculous things they've heard that he has done in Capernaum. That would be his new home up the road. Uh, it, it, that was become his base for ministry. But they don't want to hear his claims or hear about his vision of the kingdom of God. 
And likely having expected this response, Jesus reminds them that prophets were never welcomed by their own people, by their hometown. He then goes on to give them two examples, Elijah and Elisha, both Old Testament prophets who used their miraculous powers to bless and benefit outsiders. And in one case, heal the Gentile commander of the enemy army. So catch this. Jesus has not only jolted them by not reading all of verse 2, and then shocked them with, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He now lays on them more than they can handle with his seemingly unpatriotic, anti-Israel sounding words. How dare he? And then this happens. Luke 4, verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It goes without saying that throwing someone off of a cliff is out of the ordinary in Judaism. Stoning would have been the prescribed way of judging a blasphemer. So clearly what Luke wants us to see is this mob mentality that takes over and drives the townsfolk to violence. They are so furious, they are so filled with rage that they forget all about the diapers they changed when Jesus was in the nursery. They have forgotten about how he was always such a well-behaved and well-mannered child and that recently he had become Nazareth's claim to fame. But none of that matters. None of that matters. In their mind, Jesus is a heretic, dreamer, and blasphemer and deserving of a violent death in the name of saving their nation. But somehow, in the midst of their fury, Jesus, still operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, walks right through this hostile crowd. And for what we can tell, from what we can tell, Jesus never returns to Nazareth. Folks, if if you've never stopped to think about it before, imagine the hurt and the pain that Jesus must have felt to be rejected in this way. But this, of course, is the road Jesus has chosen as Messiah. He understands that some people don't want his good news because they like things the way they are, and it's just too much to rethink what you thought you knew and to repent, especially if you think that you are God's chosen people. And that's how the crowd responded to Jesus' inaugural address. But he didn't let it stop him from claiming the kingdom and living out his messianic agenda. As we can see from the Gospels, Jesus acts on everything he said uh, he had come to do in his reading of Isaiah. He delivered on his promises for a period of about three years. And somewhere in this short ministry, he gives us what some scholars have called the constitution of the kingdom. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. So much to what Jesus was doing wasn't only politically subversive, it was also reminiscent or alluded to something that occurred in the life of Israel. In the case of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on a mountain to give us his law of the kingdom. Just as Moses gave Israel the old covenant law on Mount Sinai, Jesus gives us the new covenant law on the Mount of Beatitudes. And what Jesus teaches us there is what it looks like to live under his lordship, what it looks like to embrace his messianic agenda and to apply it to our lives. 
Well, we shouldn't see the sermon as a list of rules and requirements, as some are tempted to do, but rather a description of the society of Jesus, his kingdom community. You know, when we read Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we can see that this community is driven by a love of God and our neighbors, including our enemies, a community known for our passionate pursuit of righteousness and justice, known for loving and telling the truth with no need to swear on a Bible to prove it, known for loving, lovingly turning the other cheek in order to expose the shameful acts of evildoers, a community known for rooting out our own anger and our own lust, for being faithful to our spouses, known for giving to the poor, for being spiritual and religious without hypocrisy, for being content and not materialistic and, and greedy, for not being a people who worry, but being a non-anxious presence in the world. A kingdom community, folks, known not for being judgmental, but identified by a radical, inclusive love that points people and leads others to this narrow road that leads to life. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, all of that should sound very familiar to you. Uh, if you've not read the Sermon on the Mount in a while, I encourage you to go and read it, and read it slowly. The sermon begins with what we call the Beatitudes, and we should understand the Beatitudes, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, as an explanation and description of what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus said is how the kingdom can be summed up. And so when Jesus says, blessed are, right, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the merciful, this blessedness has meaning for the present as well as the future. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is good news to these people. It's happiness for those people. Yet the happiness of the Beatitudes isn't about feeling good. It's about being good and living like Jesus. It's blessings for those who choose to follow him. And ultimately, ultimately, Jesus blesses three kinds of people in the Beatitudes. Those who are poor, marginalized, and forgotten. And number two, those who hunger and thirst for what is right, fair, and just. And three, those who create and work for peace and all its forms. And this is how King Jesus is remaking the world. This is how he rules and reigns. This is how his kingdom comes. As N.T. Wright says, uh, the Beatitudes are Jesus' political agenda for kingdom people. When God wants to change the world, he doesn't send in the tanks. He sends in the meek, the mourners, those who are hungry and thirsty for God's justice, the peacemakers, and so on. I love that. And Warren Carter, a historical Jesus scholar, said it this way. In the Beatitudes, Jesus has the disciples imagine a different world, a different identity for themselves, a different set of practices, a different relationship to the status quo. Why imagine? Not because it's impossible, not because it is escapist, not because it is fantasy, Warren Carter says, but because it begins to counter patterns imbibed from the culture of the imperial world. You see, church, in the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus is casting a vision for how his church can be a city on a hill, and as he said, the light of the world. And those words don't describe America, or any other nation or empire on the earth. It describes his body, a new humanity, which transcends all borders, boundaries, and lines on a map. As Jesus says at the end of his sermon, this is how we build our house 
on a rock. We sang that song in Sunday school, but I don't know if we've ever really connected it as, the, as evangelicals and the church in America connected that to the Sermon on the Mount. If we're going to build our house on a rock, we build it on his teachings. We build it upon the constitution of the kingdom of God. You see, but we get to choose. We get to choose. He sets before us life or death, kingdom or empire, the new way or the old way. So we have to ask, will we turn our eyes to the hill or to the mount? I'll give you a second to think about that one. Where does our help come from, church? Does it come from what politicians ultimately do in Washington? Or does it come from what God in Christ did on the cross? We're meeting together. I would have expected some amens there. You see, folks, the biggest choice you'll ever make isn't your decision on November 3rd, though I admit that's pretty important. But the biggest decision, really, that you'll ever make is, is whether or not you're going to follow Jesus, accept his agenda, and its implications for how you live. Again, let's soak it up and take it in together. This is the messianic agenda of Jesus that we've been talking about. The messianic agenda of Jesus is about forgiveness of sins and crippling debt. The Messianic agenda of Jesus is about blessings for the spiritually destitute, help for the helpless, the poor, outsiders, and so forth. The Messianic agenda of Jesus is about compassion for the brokenhearted. It's about healing physical and spiritual wounds, opening the eyes of the blind. The Messianic agenda of Jesus is about deliverance from spiritual evil and from oppressive systems of abuse and injustice. And look at this, the messianic agenda of Jesus offers rewards and benefits for the merciful, for those who love their enemies, for peacemakers, and for those persecuted for Jesus' sake. And brothers and sisters, as I'm sure you can see, while the messianic agenda of Jesus is good news for those wanting a new world, it's bad news for those who aren't willing to repent and let go of the old one. Because the truth is this, if you're the kind of person that's been oppressed and exploited by the empire, that is you see your need for forgiveness and compassion, that you need mercy, healing, deliverance, and so forth, you see your need for the salvation and the new life that Jesus brings, then accepting the messianic agenda is a bit easier for you. You probably even welcome it like many people in Jesus' ministry who come running to Jesus and falling at his feet. But if you see yourself as self-reliant and self-sufficient, and you know, you're, you're okay with your spiritual situation, you're not that bad of a person. And if you're benefiting from the power and privilege of, uh, of, of maintaining the status quo and benefiting from greed and crony capitalism, you know, you're doing all right. If you're disconnected from the marginalized and the disenfranchised, if you don't actually know people who can't get a job or enough jobs to make a living, people who depend upon food stamps, and you've never experienced the effects of racism, sexism, poverty, and bigotry, then you're probably not going to like or desire Christ's kingdom. 
And in some way, you'll, find, you'll, you'll try to find a way to be Christian and compartmentalize Jesus and his teachings so that you don't have to take them seriously. Because you see, Jesus cares about all of that. He's not just interested in saving souls. He's interested in bodies. He's interested in bringing the righteousness and justice of the kingdom into the present evil age. But if we're going to get on board with that, whoever we are, it's going to require repentance. And that's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time promised by God has come at last. Jesus announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Church, please hear me. The good news is so much bigger than accept Jesus so you can have your sins forgiven and die and go to heaven one day. Escaping the earth and leaving it to burn. In fact, that alone is a distortion of the true gospel message. Never did Jesus or the rest of the New Testament speak about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. I challenge you to find it. It's not there. The gospel of the New Testament has always been about heaven coming to earth, which means that the gospel is holistic. It's about freeing the spirit, soul, and body of a person and of communities and of nations. It's about the kingdom of God being realized on this planet. It's about God getting his way in the world, which looks like the messianic agenda expressed in Jesus' inaugural address and through the Sermon on the Mount. But again, you see, to welcome and experience the power of this in our lives, we all must repent. Now, I, I know that seems like a religious, churchy word, maybe even archaic, but what Jesus means there and what it means in the original language is we all must be willing to change our thinking, to turn around and give up on our way, the old way, the world's way, and let the Messiah from Nazareth lead us to the kind of peace and freedom found only in the kingdom of God. It's hard, I know. It's hard to repent. But you know, it reminds me of what the German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his classic book, Discipleship. He said, the command of Jesus is hard, unutterably hard, for those who try to resist it. But for those who willingly submit, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Finally, church, we come to a time of invitation response. And here are a few ways that I think we can embrace the agenda of Jesus, actually steps, steps to embracing the agenda of Jesus. Number one, we can begin by acknowledging where our priorities do not align with those that Jesus taught and lived. And that takes us being honest with ourselves. To read the Gospels, to listen to Jesus' inaugural address in the Sermon on the Mount and say, I prioritize my life differently. I prioritize issues differently. And be honest and acknowledge where those are inconsistent with Christ. Number two, the second step, be honest and confess how the Jesus of the Gospels doesn't always agree with you. And let me say this and challenge you. If you find yourself like living the Christian faith, and Jesus always seems to agree with you, you're probably doing something wrong. That's my guess. 
So be honest. And where you see inconsistencies, where you see your life juxtaposed to Jesus and his agenda, let's confess that. And let's, let's recognize that Jesus is not an American. Number three, repent of the attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that conflict with Jesus. Again, this requires you to stop, to turn and go the other way. Don't make excuses. Don't try to save your life. Jesus said, if you do that, you're going to lose it. Confess and repent. Change and do what is necessary to correcting bad attitudes, unhealthy and destructive beliefs and behaviors that conflict with Jesus. And then lastly, number four, put Jesus' words into action. It's not enough just to be hearers of the word, as James said. We must be doers. Folks, doers are those who get to call themselves followers. Again, as Bonhoeffer said, the command of Jesus is hard when we resist, but when we obey, that's when we get to experience the life of the kingdom, the abundant life that Jesus so desperately wants to give us. And oh, how we need that life for such a time as this. As we close in prayer, would you join me in asking that God would give us hearts that are willing to obey so that we can follow King Jesus and welcome more of his kingdom in our lives, in our church, in our country, and around the world. Let's pray. Father, we know that following Jesus is not easy. And it's especially hard when we resist your way. Lord, but we say today, we recognize you have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? Where else shall we go? We come to you this morning, recognizing you as Lord, Master, and King. And we pledge allegiance to you, your kingdom, and your messianic agenda. Fill us with the Holy Spirit today and empower us to live this out, to be doers of the word and followers of you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.